Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World from 1978 was written before The Scapegoat, which we read a considerable portion of last week, and yet I'm assigning it after The Scapegoat. And there is a reason for that, which is that The Scapegoat, if read prior to Things Hidden, sets up an interesting sort of mystery, which is there has been a process by which this procedure of sacralization, in other words, this process that, according to Girard, leads to the creation or genesis of the sacred, which passes through the victimization of a single scapegoat by a community, which unites the community and momentarily allows a kind of release of its violent internal tensions that this process has been gradually discredited and has lost its capacity to generate the kind of sacralization and the kind of social cohesion that it, according to Girard, seemed to once be capable of achieving in more ancient and archaic societies. So the scapegoat, if you'll recall, compares myths in which this process is present, although in a somewhat mystified and distorted form, to what he calls texts of persecution, in which something like this process is represented as occurring, right? Uh, Victims are selected, are persecuted, and are blamed for the misfortunes afflicting the community. And yet, um, In the second type of text, as Girard shows in The Scapegoat, there is no equivalent capacity to generate the sacred, right? So violence does not have the sacralizing function that it seemed to once have. So the question this raises, of course, is what is the process by which this change occurred? Why is it less possible today than it was in earlier times? What led to this discrediting? If, if the scapegoat presents this process by comparing ancient myth to these more recent texts of persecution and suggests that this kind of scapegoating can still occur today as well, but just doesn't have quite the same capacity to, to generate the sacred by turning victims into gods and related phenomena, that... We need to explain how this came about, how this change occurred, what was it that did this discrediting, okay? And so in Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World, as well as in the latter part of The Scapegoat, he gives his answer to this, right? Which is that it is the biblical texts that brought about this kind of discrediting and debunking of the process of sacralization. So... I'll go into that in more detail in a minute, but I just wanted to provide a little bit of interesting background on the sort of project that he's engaged in here, which I already brought up to some extent during um, my discussion of violence and the sacred, but wanted to come back to. So there's this tradition of religious anthropology, which goes back through the 19th century, and which figures various, primarily British, uh, some German, some French, 
writers who in various ways try to understand the origins of religion and draw parallels between the different religions of different cultures and see what they all had in common. In other words, was there some single anthropological theory that could account for all of these religious uh, phenomena and manifestations across different cultures? So one of the things they often did was... um, go through the myths and sacred texts of different religious traditions, different mythological traditions, and try to figure out what the points of similarity and continuity were between them. So what they often found, and this is what in the 19th century could still make these types of arguments somewhat scandalous and even um, dangerous, was that the sacred texts of the of the Christian tradition, which still, at least in the 19th century, had a certain prestige and status, right? Because Christianity still had a greater degree of political and social um, power than it, than it does today. And um, what they found was that the Christian narrative had all sorts of resemblances to other religions' narratives. So an example of this that's often brought up is uh, the myth of Dionysus, right, which in some ways resembles that of Christ, um, where he's essentially killed by his own followers. Um, Or we might think of the myth of Osiris in ancient Egypt, which features a god who is is killed and then resurrects, right? So these are only the most famous examples. And the point here is that these types of stories are extremely common across cultures, right? Where you have gods who are killed and then resurrect, right? This is nothing special to Christianity. In fact, it's one of the most typical and common types of myths that you find, right? So so for these um, religious anthropologists of the 19th century who might have been more or less skeptical of the authoritative claims of religion, the purpose of this whole enterprise was to some extent to debunk and discredit Christianity, right? So in other words, the, the idea was if you can show that there's this um, similarity and that myths from across the world feature these various motifs of, you know, let's say the death and resurrection, but we, we might also think of something like the virgin birth. Um, if, if all of these motifs that, that figure so heavily in Christian texts are in fact, um, simply variations of the types of stories that are told in various religions, that means Christianity is nothing special. Ergo, it's claimed to be some kind of, um, revealed truth uh, would appear to be weaker, right? So so this whole enterprise of religious anthropology had this kind of debunking or discrediting agenda, right? And that was true whether or not the authors were specifically setting out to do that, right? It was, it was kind of regarded as dangerous regardless, just because the, um, the implications of saying that Christianity was simply one myth or the, the the narratives of Christianity, the foundational narratives of Christianity, were simply one myth among others, um, was was quite a, a controversial one, let's say, still at the time. As indeed it would still be for for Christians today, perhaps. Now, it's true that there were actually um, 
precursors to this that were carried out in a more um, pro-Christian or or in a way that was not necessarily seen as inconsistent with Christianity. So there was this idea of prefiguration. So if you look back to the Renaissance, you had all of these scholars who were studying Greek and Roman myths, as well as gradually finding out about other cultures, including after the conquest of the Americas, the, the myths of the you know peoples like the Aztecs. And so they too were, I mean, many of them themselves, Jesuit priests or Franciscans, were also noticing these similarities, right? They were also seeing that you know, even if you look in such a distant culture as the Aztecs, there were myths and even rituals that resembled um, Christian myths and rituals. So this, in other words, this 19th century religious anthropology had certain precursors. They weren't the first people to notice these similarities. But usually what the, um, the earlier Jesuit and Franciscan interpreters did was to say these pagan peoples had had a sort of vague premonition of the true religion, right? And so at those moments when their narratives, when their myths um, seemed to resemble Christianity, that was because they were getting some kind of vague hint of the truth, even though they weren't really fully there. So that was one version of it, right? Where pagan religions in various ways prefigured Christian religions. And this was part of how in Renaissance times they recuperated a lot of the symbolism of Greco-Roman mythology into um, Christian culture and Christian iconography, right? Which, you know, there was this complex way the different Greek gods could sort of stand in for Christian meanings and so on. So there was that, and then there was a slightly more um, complicated version of the same idea, which was that basically if you looked at, and this is particularly a thing that um, Jesuit missionaries thought about um, pre-Columbian Mesoamerican and Andean cultures, that if you looked at their um, rituals and the way they could resemble Christian communion, what you had actually was a kind of, um, that the, the idea was basically that the devil had um, visited those people and kind of uh, instructed them in a kind of parody of Christianity, right? Where they were, what they were carrying out was a kind of inverted and grotesque parody of the true religion, Right. But nevertheless, in both cases, the similarities were recognized, but they were still incorporated in a way that saw Christianity as superior, right? The pagan myths could only be vague prefigurations of the Christian truth. So, um, again, I think this, too, is not not exactly what Girard is, is getting at, right? He's not... Even though he does essentially consider himself, particularly later in his career, a kind of apologist for Christianity, and we can get into the implications of that term if you're interested, but, you know, he's doing apologetics, which is, you know, essentially a kind of intellectual justification of Christian truth claims. Um, nevertheless, you know, he he's not doing it in the way that these earlier um, priests who sort of understood pagan myth as a prefiguration of Christian truth. He's, he's not quite doing that, nor is he simply claiming a total continuity between um, pagan myth and Christian revelation. Um, he, he explicitly denies that Christianity is one myth among others. But it is worth noting that um, he, he does make an interesting claim, which is that 
the the purpose of these earlier religious anthropologists had been to demystify Christianity. In other words, kind of rob it of its sacred aura by showing that it's just like all these other religious stories that we now regard as kind of fanciful and, um, and not particularly authoritative, right? That, so they, they regarded, um, their project as to demystify Christianity and they assumed that the pagan myths had all, had already been demystified, right? That they no longer had any credibility. And so you could simply kind of bring Christianity down to the same level as them by debunking it. So what Gerard is doing in a sense inverts that because what he's arguing is that the Christian narrative is itself a demystifying enterprise, which is to say Christianity demystifies, decodes, and discredits myth as such. So in other words, he you know goes on to say at some point that you know intellectuals of today are less advanced than the Gospels, and in fact are less advanced even than the book of Genesis, right? So, in other words, in some ways he's holding up, um, he's holding up the, the Christian and Jewish scriptures as the most intellectually advanced project, right? In other words, as the, the sort of ne plus ultra of intellectual work, and specifically as a, a debunking enterprise, as, as an enterprise that um, that exposed and revealed and decoded um, the the lies and and half truths and illusions in which humanity had previously been mired. Right. So, again, there's this kind of reversal. The previous religious anthropologists said they were debunking Christianity, or as we might say, you know, to coin a silly joke, you know, in in Girardian Soviet Russia, Christianity demystifies you or something like that. So basically his goal here explicitly is to capture the core demystifying power of the Jewish and Christian texts. So what are they demystifying? Well, they're demystifying myth fundamentally. They're also demystifying two other things that are closely related to myth, which are ritual and um, sacred prohibitions, right? So here we might think of the kinds of prohibitions that you see in um, in the book of Leviticus in the Bible, right? So obviously Jewish culture and later to some extent Christian culture incorporated plenty of these prohibitions, right? But Gerard's position is that there's a kind of push away from this system of priestly prohibitions that maintain the sort of aura of the sacred. Now, I talked about this in relation to the scapegoat last week, um, where he talks about the idea that there are various prohibitions that um, serve to prevent the re-emergence of violent reciprocity, right? In other words, this idea that society is threatened at all times by violent reciprocity, right? And so... There are various prohibitions that are meant to to um, prevent that, right? By essentially keeping things separate, um, keeping things hierarchically distinct, and thereby preventing a kind of spiraling competition. He also talks in The Scapegoat about prohibitions on blood. Um, so he mentions the fact that many cultures 
essentially quarantine or isolate women who are menstruating, right? And so his claim is that, you know, even just the sight of blood provokes horror because it is associated with the danger of violence. And so um, this type of ritual prohibition ties back to this basic function of religion, which is to to control and contain violence that threatens to consume societies at all times. So there is obviously a sort of um, a way that, you know, Judaism and Christianity do not, um, do not completely dispense with all of these things. Right. And that's, that's an important point here, but he claims that there's a kind of gradual process of unveiling, right. That occurs. And so in his account of the Jewish scriptures, right, he argues that there's a sort of um, gradual moving away from the, the themes that typify mythology. And yet the, the moving away involves their kind of reinvocation in a way that can create this mistake where it's assumed that they're simply falling back into the traditions of myth, right? So he points to the similarity, for example, between Cain and Abel and Romulus and Remus, right? Who are the brothers who found Rome? In both cases, one brother kills the other. And that killing is central to the foundation of the the city or the, the culture, the society. So, by the way, this is sort of a an interesting point, the title, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. So there's sort of a double meaning there because foundation could just mean founding, right? But it could also mean literally physical foundation. And in fact, there is a conflation there. Um, so Gerard often points to this idea of the, the cornerstone, the association between the cornerstone and the sacrificial tomb, Right. And the fact that's well documented by archaeology that in many, many cities as well as structures, including bridges, were built literally on the bodies of sacrificial victims. So there were people killed in order to enable the founding. And, you know, this is a relatively well documented archaeological phenomenon, which we can also find recorded in myth, right? So Cain is the first murderer, he kills Abel, and he's also basically the founder of culture, right? He, he founds um, the first human culture, right? So already in this um, parallelism between Cain and Abel and Romulus and Remus, Gerard points to a crucial difference, which is that Romulus is killed as a transgressor, Right, and part of the point of the myth is that his transgression is um, the cause of his death. In other words, that he was in some way um, deserving of the death that he was dealt by his brother, and so in that sense, he um, he was the the scapegoat. We might, he functioned as a scapegoat, right? In the same way that Oedipus as we discussed, is presented in the myth as straightforwardly guilty of the transgressions that he's accused of, right? But it's important to note that in the Bible, the parallel myth of Cain and Abel insists on the innocence of Abel, right? And so Abel is is killed, and that is what enables the foundation, but Abel is innocent, 
and he, you know, God essentially says that, you know, your brother's blood cries out from the ground, right? So in some sense, this murder is presented as, as shameful, right? And while it is necessary to the founding of culture, it is also the the victim is not um, presented in the usual terms of a scapegoat, right? The victim is presented as as simply and straightforwardly innocent of um, of any wrongdoing that that would be understood as a cause or or reason or rationale for his death. So even with the very beginning of the Bible, there's an idea that this process is being demystified, right? That on one hand, the process is being repeated, cities are being founded on the blood of sacrificial victims, and yet there is a, a kind of um, justification of the victim, right? The victim is, is innocent, right? And it is in the name of these victims that the prophets and later Jesus himself speak out against the the sins and iniquities of the culture in which they exist, right? So the point here is, again, that um, there is already at the very beginning in Genesis uh, a sort of um, systematic recapitulation, but de- also debunking of the, of the um, sacrificial procedure of generating the sacred, right? So there's also this prolonged discussion of the story of Joseph, right? Which, as Girard points out, has similarities to various um, sacrificial myths, right? Joseph is repeatedly, he's, um, on one hand, he's scapegoated, right? His entire, all of his brothers gang up against him in this unanimous act of of surrogate victimage, right, where they essentially discharge their various enmities and rivalries on him. Um, they throw him in a well. He gets sold into slavery. And then he continues to play this role, right, where he is um, brought into the, uh, the house of Potiphar, right, who's one of Pharaoh's viziers, He's then accused of essentially attempted rape by Potiphar's wife, but he is once again vindicated, right? So Joseph is repeatedly accused of the things that mythic victims might um, might be accused of to make them the, the sacred victim who, whose expulsion or killing enables the societies um, coming back together. Yet... He's repeatedly um, vindicated, right? His innocence is repeatedly proclaimed. And so um, Girard points to a similarity between Joseph and Oedipus, in that Oedipus and Joseph, you know, their um, Oedipus's violation in the form of incest and Joseph's violation in the form of attempted rape of his mistress. Um, are are both key narrative events, and yet their outcomes are completely different, right? Because in the Oedipus myth, Oedipus is straightforwardly guilty, and in, in Joseph's story, Joseph is straightforwardly innocent. 
And so he structurally occupies this position of the scapegoat, and yet the narrative repeatedly takes his side and vindicates him, shows him to be innocent, right? Shows him to be someone, to use a phrase Gerard cites, um, persecuted without cause, right? This is a, a phrase from the Psalms. So these, um, these texts essentially um, repeat again and again this, um, this idea that the scapegoat narrative is being, um, is being kind of undermined or turned on his head. He points also to the story of Exodus, right, where you have uh, the Jews as an oppressed slave class in Egypt, and they then um, escape or are expelled. Um, And so he points out that um, if this were, he says, in order to function normally in the sense of the myths we have already dealt with, Exodus would have to be an Egyptian myth. The myth would show us a sacrificial crisis resolved by the expulsion of the troublemakers, Moses and his companions. Thanks to their expulsion, the order that Moses disturbed would have been reestablished in the society of Egypt. We are indeed dealing with this kind of model, but it has been diverted towards the scapegoat, who is not only made human, but goes on to form a community of a new type. So, the idea here is that if you shift the perspective... You could imagine a version of the Oedipus myth, right, told from the perspective of the Egyptians, right? So in this case, many of the same things happen, right? There's this kind of um, witch doctor-like figure or two figures, Aaron and Moses, who bring down the sort of curses upon Egypt, cause plagues and the death of the firstborn and so on. And um, then the the this figure and the group that he belongs to the Jews are expelled and this allows the Egyptian society to restore its um its order and and harmony right so this Gerard posits would be normal myth right this is how a normal myth would work but instead what we get is a kind of inverted version of that right which is from the perspective of the scapegoat right from the perspective of the scapegoated group and so this, again, is typical of what seems to be happening in the Jewish scriptures, which, you know, is, is more complex than perhaps than he gets into and than, than I will be able to get into here. But it is important to note that there's, a, there's an idea of there being a kind of internal conflict at work in... Um, in Judaism, where on one hand you have this, um, you have this establishment of these typically um, pagan, we might say, institutions, including sacrifice and and sort of sacred prohibitions, right? So we have um, we have a sacrificial dimension, right, where there there are ritualized forms of sacrifice that are that are licit and permitted. And there's also a complicated system of sort of priestly prohibitions of the sort that we find in, in many other cultures, right? Which Gerard discussed in the passage we, we looked at last week. And yet he says, or rather this is his interlocutor, uh, Jean-Michel Ugorlian, the three pillars of 
primitive religion, myth, sacrifice, and prohibition are subverted by the thought of the prophets. And this general activity of subversion is invariably governed by the bringing of light of the mechanisms that found religion, the unanimous violence against the scapegoat. So who are the prophets? Well, the prophets are a series of figures who have many of their own books of the Bible, right, and who also feature in some of the biblical narratives, such as um, Samuel and Kings. And what you have there are these figures who essentially exhort Israel to live up to its standards, right? And often, you know, they're critical of the sacrificial, the ongoing sacrificial practices, right? So on one hand, you have the Israelites continuing to practice sacrifice. On the other hand, you have the prophets essentially saying, you're, sa- you know, channeling God to say your sacrifices are worthless. Um, and so there's a, there's an abandonment of that, that sort of crutch of primitive religion, right? And an exhortation to to something else, right? To um, an adherence to uh, a more ethical and less ritualized version of religion, if we want to call it that. And I think what what's complicated here is Girard sees Judaism and then Christianity as the religions that essentially end religion, right? They're, they're religions that sort of deconstruct religion itself. And... I think one thing, just as an aside, that's worth noting here is that Gerard sees the the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible as sort of internally conflicted, where it 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 sort of is moving towards this um, exposure and revelation of the scapegoat as the foundation of religion, and yet and and thereby, as in the passage I just suggest, in the passage I just quoted, is gradually subverting in texts like the prophetic texts and in the book of Job, which he has a book about, um, is gradually subverting the functioning of religion as it existed prior to then. But there is this kind of tension with the ongoing edifice of, of ritual sacrifice and ritual prohibitions that you still have as part of the religion. So, so there is this kind of internal tension. I would say as an aside that Gerard does not see this tension and this, I think, could be a point of critique, right? That he's willing to see a kind of complexity or tension within the text of the Hebrew Bible. Whereas in the case of Christianity, he does not really see a tension bet- within the text of the Gospels, right? He sees the Gospels as fundamentally dedicated to exposing and uprooting the violent origins of religion. And yet... He does see a tension within Christianity, but it's essentially the tension between the version of Christianity enunciated in the Gospels and historical Christianity as it's actually existed, which, as we discussed last week, has, for example, extensively engaged in scapegoating of Jews, right? And has ironically scapegoated Jews on the basis of their having supposedly scapegoated Christ. So this sort of um, foresees something we'll get to later, right? Which is that once you debunk scapegoating and have a religion that is that posits itself against scapegoating, the problem isn't necessarily solved because the accusation of scapegoating can become the basis of further scapegoating, 
In other words, Christianity does not actually end scapegoating. Instead, it gives rise to a new form of scapegoating, which Gerard says can only be directed at accused scapegoaters. So in other words, in order to scapegoat someone today, you have to accuse them of scapegoating someone else. And if you don't do that, then the accusations you make against them may not be seen as um, as sufficient to justify what you're doing, right? So this is a this is a point we'll get to later on, but it's worth flagging here that I think there is an interesting point that he's he's willing to see this kind of internal tension working itself out within the text of the Hebrew Bible, right? Which, on one hand, repeatedly reveals this this process of debunking, right, of, of the sacrificial origins of religion, right, and thus a kind of gradual rejection by the prophets, for example, of sacrificial practices, um, and the sort of winnowing down of religion away from this vast Oedipus of priestly ritual prohibitions and towards this kind of ethical core, right, of avoiding... Um, scandal, as we'll discuss later, of, of avoiding um, the uh, coveting of the neighbor's possessions, right, as he discusses the, the crucial elements in the Ten Commandments actually being um, the, the avoidance of conflict through the avoidance of, of envy and jealousy, right, um, and, and also the avoidance of, of reciprocal violence um, of the sort that would bring about a sort of mimetic spiral of reprisals. So there is within the Hebrew Bible this kind of ethical core that um, points to the possibility of a kind of be, uh, a kind of revelation beyond religion where there is a, a non-sacrificial and non-prohibition based um, means of avoiding violence. But once we get to historical Christianity, of course, um, scapegoating reemerges. And so again, the tension that I would argue he sees within the Hebrew Bible, he then also sees not within the gospel text, as I said, but between the gospel text and historical Christianity, right? And so I think that's, that's another important thing to flag here because his... Um, his attempt to see the gospel texts as perfectly embodying this message of of a kind of nonviolence and um, non-sacrificial sort of post-religion um, does require him to, I think, perhaps see them in a less nuanced way than he does the the Hebrew Bible, right? Which um, embodies this kind of tension, right? And so. We don't see that tension in his reading of the Gospels, but we do see it in his reading of the relationship between the Gospels and historical Christianity. So I think, you know, this basic um, phrase that he derives from um, Matthew, but in fact, it's a moment in which Matthew quotes from the Psalms, right? And he says, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So that's the derivation of this title, right, for this book, um, Things Hidden Since the Foundation of the World. 
So, what are the things hidden? To review, um, the things hidden are essentially the many victims who have fallen at the hands of mobs in order to stabilize and restabilize communities threatened by dissolution. And thus, the things hidden are the, the violent origins of culture in the scapegoat mechanism. As he says, the symbolic matrix of all these signifiers and signifieds is the scapegoat mechanism. So in other words, um, the, the scapegoat mechanism is the, is the foundational element of all culture and cultural institutions. And so when Jesus says things like he comes not to bring peace but the sword, in Gerard's reading, what he's saying here is simply that he is, he is taking away the, the only means which humanity has to prevent or avoid conflict, right? And so while he would appear to be bringing peace in the sense that he is um, telling people to love their neighbors as themselves— he is also by debunking sacrifice, right? By debunking the means of pacification that comes from scapegoating. He is um, removing or discrediting the primary means of conflict resolution that humanity has thus far based its cultural and social existence upon. So the things hidden are... Again, the victims and the process that that generated them, right? They are hidden since the foundation of the world. And it's important to note that if you read further in this book, there's an attempt to go back to the origin of culture, which he describes as homini- which he refers to as hominization, which would be the process by which human beings um, evolve from essentially creatures of nature to creatures of culture, we might say, right? But hominization would literally be mean something like um, becoming man. And so his claim is that there's really um, a, a foundation that goes back to the earliest development of humans biologically into cultural beings, Right, that is that is premised on this um, act of collective violence against the scapegoat, and so this is why the world—it's the foundation of the world because the world is associated with the devil, right? Who is the prince of this world, and the world is the world of culture, right? Which, as it's represented in the Bible, is founded by Cain. Uh, upon the the murder of his brother. Um, So this, um, the world is in a sense satanic or demonic because as Girard says, Satan is the name for the mimetic process seen as a whole. That is why he's the source not merely of rivalry and disorder, but of all the forms of lying order inside which humanity lives. So Satan is the being who um, sort of metaphorically stands in for the 
the process that enables violence to be channeled out of the community through violence, right? And it's interesting to note as an aside, which will sort of um, connect to a later discussion of Nietzsche, that he also in Violence and the Sacred associates this figure with the sort of mythic figure of this um, mimetic violence culminating in the scapegoat mechanism. He associates this with the, fi- the mythic figure of Dionysus, right? So there's a an interesting um, correspondence between Satan and Dionysus that might be worth coming back to in relation to Nietzsche. But the important thing to take away from this passage, I would say, is simply that the... Bible is, again, the kind of great decoding, debunking, demystifying text, right, which brings about a kind of pivot in human history, right? Before that pivot, there was a kind of generalized reign of the scapegoat mechanism as embodied in all of the cultural institutions, sacrifice, prohibitions, etc., that it founded. And... Um, after that pivot, there was a, an exposure and turning away from that mechanism. And the working out of, of that revelation, right, um, of, of the revelation to humanity of its origins in this kind of sacralizing violence is essentially what Girard sees as the 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 moment that eventually begets the modern world, right? The modern world ultimately comes about as a result of this process. And so what we're still seeing today, as we'll see in his discussion of Clausewitz, as well as some of his other later work, is this gradual working out of this logic that we see beginning to be worked out in the Hebrew Bible, right? Where... You still have these mythic structures, but you have the beginning of this kind of inversion of them, where they no longer succeed in generating the sacred, right? Where you have, um, you know, Abel is not deified. Um, He is merely an innocent victim of violence, right? Or the prophets denounce um, sacrifice, right, as as an ineffective and ultimately futile gesture, right? So this gradual debunking of this process of sacralization, on one hand, would be appear to be a kind of moral as well as intellectual progress. But on the other hand, it leaves humanity without a means of dealing with its own violence or without the primary means of dealing with its own violence that it has relied upon since its origins. So that is the um, that is the basic problem that this revelation leaves us with. And Girard argues on one hand that we are um, we have we have progressed so far beyond this, right? That we um, Again, as I mentioned before, we primarily scapegoat because of accusations of scapegoating. So we, we scapegoat people when we claim that they are scapegoating others, right? And perhaps uh, 
Um, we can think of plenty of recent examples of this on social media forums, right? Where, you know, accusations of racism, transphobia, things like that, right? Which would all be modes of scapegoating are, you know, whether they're substantiated or not, are the most effective ways of galvanizing a sort of mob against, um, against people often. So we have in that, in that sense moved far beyond the um, situation, right? Because scapegoating has become, as we discussed, so as we discussed in the previous week, so discredited that it no longer has the sacralizing effect. And so, in order to justify it at all, we actually use its own um, poor reputation to justify our own continuation of scapegoating, right? And yet, on the other hand, as I brought up earlier, Gerard, in, in the Pat short section from the scapegoat that I followed up with this week, you know, he, he also sees us kind of backsliding. Um, and he says, as, as I noted before, we are very, we're very, very far behind the Gospels and even Genesis, right? So we, in some sense, um, refuse this message, right? Even though it's had such an immense impact, we are also unable or unwilling to accept it. Um, and therefore, we, we do everything in our power intellectually to, to deny it. And um, we, as he argues here, you know, fall back into pagan um, attachment to parasite, incest, etc., as he, as he says regarding, um, as he says regarding psychoanalysis and Freud, um, but basically we might, we might think here about, um, you know, the, the way that the function that sort of scandalous taboo accusations continues to have in our culture, right. And, and perhaps has to a greater degree than, than it has for a while. And so, you know, this, um, this tension, right. This, um, this kind of, um, coexistence of progress and regress, um, which Gerard sees at work within the text of the Hebrew Bible, right, is also very much at work in Christian and post-Christian culture, right, that these, these two things are constantly coexisting with each other, right, and that's the, that's the result of the, the revelation that he, that he sees occurring in the scriptures, which again is a sort of pivotal turning point in the history of humanity, which gradually deprives us of the efficacy of these, um, these mechanisms for creating the sacred. Now, I think another question that, that has been asked about this theory and that, you know, is worth raising is, um, you know, if you look at other religions, other major world religions, you can see somewhat similar processes, right? Of, for example, a repudiation of, of most forms of sacrifice, right? And of other kinds of moving beyond this, this sort of primitive sacred, um, which is generated, Gerard says, through this, through, um, sacralized violence, right? And so we see other religions that have done this. And so one question that's worth asking is, you know, Gerard insists very much on the, at least particularly in things hidden on the uniqueness of the gospel in particular, um, in its, in its again, demystifying and debunking power. But it is worth asking, 
how we might account for the parallel developments that seem to have occurred in other cultures around the world. And so um, I will leave it there, but I will also just briefly discuss this other short section of things hidden on the, the notion of scandal which I think is one of the most interesting and crucial sections of the book. So that will be just a brief separate lecture because it, I think, is worth addressing um, separately from this account of the impact of the um, scriptural texts, even though it, it does um, derive from the same basic claims. So I will, again, be discussing that briefly in a separate video.